0: welcome to lectures and seminars brought to you by aeros la the audio internet reading service of los angeles this is a recording of a telephone conference that was presented on november 18 2009 by the Royal institute and dr Bill keshta on vision stimulation okay good evening everybody thank you very very much for taking time from your evenings And this is a a really nice opportunity for all of us to have some dialogue about your children that you're working with and your own children. And basically, just to tell you a little bit about myself, my name is uh, Dr. Bill Takeshta, and I'm the Chief of Optometric Services at the Center for the Partially Sighted. And basically, what we do at the Center for the Partially Sighted is that we provide what are called Functional Low Vision Assessments. Now, the functional low vision assessment is a way that we can actually evaluate how much vision does a child have, and based on their level of vision and where they are developmentally, we recommend programs of vision stimulation. In such cases, we will often work with many different agencies, including the Braille Institute, the Junior Blind of America, and many other types of teachers who are teachers for the visually impaired. So it's often very helpful because these specialists, they do come to the examinations so they can actually see exactly what it is that we're recommending to help these children to develop their vision. Now, by the way, this this particular telephone conference, we are recording this through AIRS LA, so if you have other teachers, there's been many other teachers and parents who have requested that we record it, this is going to be something that will be on AIRS LA And that's at www.airsla.org. So that's www.airsla.org. And what I'll do is I'm going to go ahead and do a small presentation. And then after, we can open it up to questions. So if it would be okay, if you could hold your questions till the end, that'll be making it a lot easier for this particular recording that we're going to do. So the first thing that I really want to talk about is this entire concept of how is it that a person sees. Many times we're under the impression that when a child is born, the child just has normal vision, just like an ordinary adult. Well, what we know is that even among the children who have perfectly healthy eyes and have not had any other types of incidences, that they actually do not see like an adult when they're born what we know is that a young child who is recently born they can only see black and white we also know that the newborn child's eyes usually are only focused at a distance of 8 to 16 inches and thirdly a newborn cannot move his or her eyes and they typically are going to be most interested in looking at round circular objects as a child gets to be a little bit older We know that by about two to three months, they're really most interested in actually looking at the entire face of a person. We know that they then start to develop a little bit of an ability to move their head, to track and follow by moving their head. And we then know that by about six months, they develop the ability to focus a bit farther. They could focus at about three feet away. By 12 months, a child then has color vision. They also have the ability to coordinate the two eyes together as a team. So this is why it's very common that a child who is younger than 12 months of age, they might have a crossed eye or an eye that drifts or turns. So all of these things really show how vision is a skill that is learned and is developed. Well, we then have to ask the question, well, how is it that this entire really complicated process occurs? Well, it basically involves the eyes as well as the brain. First of all, in order for vision to occur, there has to be light. In other words, if a child is reared in an environment that is just totally dark, there is going to be no vision. But also similarly, if a child is reared in an environment that only has white light, white walls, white sheets, we know that these children also do not develop normal vision. In the 1990s, there was really a large influx of children being brought to the United States from Romania. And I had the pleasure of seeing dozens and dozens of orphans from Romania. And these were children who had perfectly healthy eyes, but they actually did not see well. The reason that they did not see well is because their brain did not receive the maximal visual stimulation. So the main purpose of the eyes is primarily to send this light and dark information from the eyes and to then send it to the brain. Now the region of the brain that we're most interested in is called the occipital lobe of the brain. If you feel the very back portion of your head, that whole region on the back of your brain there is called the occipital lobe. And the occipital lobe is very, very important because that's where the processing of visual information comes. Now we might then say, well, how do we know about all of this? Well, this is research that was actually discovered in the 1970s by two doctors, doctors Hubel and Weasel. And they actually won a Nobel Prize for their studies on kittens. Now what these doctors basically did is that they took kittens that were perfectly healthy and as soon as these kittens were born they actually separated these kittens into different groups one group of the kittens had their eyes sewed shut when their eyes were sewn shut it eliminated the ability of light to enter the eye the second group is where they actually reared them in a room that was completely white and the third group they reared them in a room where there was normal different kinds of colors and patterns. Weeks later, what they did is they evaluated, how did these kittens see? They unsutured and opened the eyes of the kittens that had their eyes sewn shut, and what they found was that these kittens, they could not traverse or walk through a maze. These kittens were actually blind. So from that, they thought, it must be that if a kitten does not receive enough light, they're going to be blind. Well, they then studied the kittens that were reared in a room that just had white walls and floors and ceilings, and they found that these kittens also were blind. So they realized that it's not just the fact that it's going to be light, but there must be something in addition. And then they studied those kittens who were reared in a normal room, and they found that those kittens who were reared or raised in a normal room, they had normal vision. So what they then later did is they studied the brains of these kittens and they were able to find that there was a very interesting thing that the very back of the brain called the occipital lobe of the brain, the cells in the occipital lobe of the brain were different between each of these groups of kittens. The kittens that were reared in a normal environment, the brain cells in the occipital lobe of the brain were very large and very immature and the kittens who were reared in a completely white room, their brain cells were much smaller. And the kittens who had their eyes sewn shut, those particular cells in the occipital brain was even smaller yet. So what that really showed them was that vision occurs in the back of the brain called the occipital lobe. And those cells of that part of the brain were actually different in size depending on what kind of stimulation. So from this research, they realized there must be something about the type of stimulation that actually causes the brain to develop. They then did additional studies where they actually placed some kittens in a room that had vertical stripes. And with these kittens, what they found when they studied their brains, they actually found that there were columns of cells. These are called dominance columns. So very interesting, when these kittens were raised in a room that had vertical stripes, they were able to only see the vertical stripes and there were actually cells in the brain that were much larger in a vertical column. When they put those kittens in a room that had horizontal stripes, these kittens could not see it. So what this really means is that the type of stimulation has a direct impact on the growth of these cells in the brain. And it doesn't matter whether you have healthy eyes or eyes that are going to be sick with different types of injuries or disease, vision is only going to occur if these cells in the occipital lobe of the brain are developed. In other words, no matter how healthy your eyes are, if the cells in the back of the brain are not developed, you will not have vision. So doctors Hubel and Weasel then they realize the environment plays a very, very important role in the development of these cells in the brain and subsequently the amount of vision that develops. So what they then did is they wanted to know what happens if we take some of these blind kittens and then suddenly put them into a room that has normal colors, normal patterns, all these different types of shapes and sizes and colors. And what they found was that those kittens that were totally blind, when they were put in a room with these patterned stimuli, they later developed vision. They were absolutely amazed about the fact that these kittens that were previously totally blind could develop vision. So they then started to do this at different ages. And what they found was that if you do not perform the visual stimulation within a certain age, it does not work. In other words, there's a critical time period, only during this time period, that vision can develop. And for the kittens, that particular time period was something that they realized was going to be the most important time that you could develop vision. And the sooner that you implemented the stimulation, the better that their vision developed. Now today, we use all of this research from doctors Hubel and Weasel. And this is something that is just absolutely critical in the area of vision today. The reason for this is because we now understand the importance of actually maximizing the child's vision as early as possible to stimulate the development of those brain cells. There's many children who have a condition that is called amblyopia. And you spell amblyopia, A-M-B-L-Y-O-P-I-A. And amblyopia is a condition in which children can have perfectly healthy eyes but they do not see well in that one eye because of the fact that that one eye actually needs glasses and no one ever prescribed glasses for that child or a person can also develop amblyopia if the eye is crossed or turned inward or outward. Now what happens in both of these situations if a child needs glasses and no one has prescribed that infant glasses The information that's sent to the brain, it's a weak signal. The eyes are sending a very weak signal to the brain, and as a result, those brain cells don't develop. When a child has a crossed or a turned eye, the brain doesn't like it because the crossed or the turned eye often causes double vision. And that makes it difficult for the brain to try to process what it sees. And as a result, the brain often will turn off or suppress the vision of one eye. So what doctors have done is that we often use the research from Hubel and Weasel, and we say let's perform vision stimulation on these children who have amblyopia. Let's go ahead and let's patch the stronger eye, and let's encourage the child to use his or her vision, and let's try to do it before the first five years of life. And what we find, and we have known this for many years, is that children who receive patching at the appropriate age, that their vision, they can go from 2400 all the way up to 2025 or sometimes even 2020. But again, the important factor here is that this stimulation has to be done during that critical time period. If we begin the vision stimulation at five or six or seven years of age, we don't get as good of results as if we begin that type of patching at two or three months of age. We also know that with many people who have suffered from different types of head injury, traumatic head injury, brain tumors, cancer, strokes, we see that many adults now who have suffered from a loss of vision because of this kind of a brain injury, that through vision stimulation, even in the vision of adults, that their vision can improve somewhat, we have seen studies coming out of Emory University where people have lost half of their peripheral vision because of a stroke, and after receiving vision stimulation, that they are developing and regaining some of their peripheral vision, so we're seeing that the studies and the research are now telling us that things are very, very different than we originally thought, in other words. Even adults who are older than the age of 7, there is still some hope if the treatment is intervened at an early enough age. So let's talk about what are some of the more common causes of vision impairment among children that we think will benefit from vision stimulation or this type of patching. Well, the first and the most common type of vision problem that children have is what's called a refractive error. And a refractive error basically means is that child able to focus the light from the world onto his or her retina. Most children have a certain degree of farsightedness, also known as hyperopia, but other kids will have myopia and astigmatism. All of these conditions within a certain degree are normal, but when the degree of the farsightedness or nearsightedness or astigmatism is greater than expected, this can be a cause of not allowing the brain to develop maximum stimulation. So the first treatment for these children are to prescribe them glasses and if one eye is not seen as well as the other we then are going to recommend patching or we might even use eye drops to actually blur the vision of the better eye and this will give the weaker eye the opportunity to stimulate that part of the brain. Now we might think about strabismus where a child has an eye that is crossed or turned inward or outward. In some cases, these children might also need glasses, but if they do not need glasses, we could also implement different types of patching. Different doctors will have their own strategies on how to patch the child, and in some cases it might involve using like a bandage patch. Other times it might mean using glasses where we frost one lens. But in either of these types of cases, we are still stimulating those brain cells that receive information from the crossed or the turned eye. Now children who are born premature very often have retinopathy of prematurity. And retinopathy of prematurity is a condition that occurs usually when a child is born before 32 weeks gestation or they have a very low birth weight. In these cases the retina is not fully developed at birth and as these children are in an incubator we often find that abnormal blood vessels develop. These blood vessels could sometimes leak and cause scar tissue and this scar tissue could also often cause the eye to become very nearsighted. When the eye is nearsighted like this we have that possibility that one eye or both eyes are not sending the best signal to the brain and that occipital region of the brain does not develop maximally. We also see with optic nerve hypoplasia This is another condition where the nerve that connects the eye to the brain, that nerve is smaller than normal, and as a result, those particular brain cells in the occipital region, they do not get maximum stimulation. You could almost think of that as if you're going to water your lawn, and the hose that you have is very, very narrow. It's very small like a straw. Your grass is not going to get as much water, and similarly, the visual centers of the brain do not get as much stimulation. And most importantly, I think the most important case for vision stimulation is going to be cortical vision impairment. Now, we tend to try to categorize cortical vision impairment under the classification, which we call neurological vision impairment. Anytime that the primary cause of the vision impairment is due to the brain, we tend to call it neurological vision impairment, And within this category, there are three types, three different types of neurological vision impairment. The most common type is called cortical vision impairment. And this is typically where these kids do not see normally because the visual cortex, the occipital lobe of the brain there, it is not functioning normally. These kids typically have better peripheral vision as compared to central vision. They usually are more interested in looking at moving and rotating objects, and we find that these kids often are going to have difficulty using their central vision. A second type of neurological vision impairment is called cortical blindness. This is when the occipital lobe has been damaged so much that they do not see anything at all. These are children who are totally blind. These kids who have cortical blindness, we usually do not find that vision stimulation is helpful. The third type of neurological vision impairment is called delayed visual maturation and this is when the connections within the occipital lobe of the brain seem to be slow to develop. When we think about what's actually happening within the brain we know that each time that a child actually sees something new and different and novel the eye sends a signal through the nerve and it eventually reaches the brain. Now what actually is happening within the brain is that there are different types of connections between the different neurons. Now there's these particular small little root-like structures that are called axons and dendrites. And when the brain is processing that type of information that it receives from the eye, a new little connection actually develops. These are called dendritic spines. So what we know is that for a young developing child, when you show your child your face versus a new toy, versus a piece of toast, or whatever it is that you're showing him, it's actually going to create a small little type of connection within these different regions of the brain. This is the same thing that happens when your child begins to crawl or begins to talk. These are different connections that are being made within the brain. And this is why it's so important that stimulation is important for all aspects all aspects of development that stimulation is critical to the brain because it helps these new little nerve connections to develop whether we're talking about vision or hearing or reaching or crawling or learning to read or write that's actually what's happening inside the brain we are not actually creating new nerves in the brain but we're actually making smaller and new connections between the nerves in the brain. So when we talk about this whole concept of vision stimulation, the way that we do it at the Center for the Parsi Cited is that we first are going to go ahead and perform our functional vision assessment. We want to find out what are your child's strengths and weaknesses, and we're going to begin by actually working with your child's strengths. The reason for this is because If a child is able to see things better, for example, on the right-hand side, we want to introduce all these targets on the right side because this is where the child can realize and learn that vision is actually something that's very enjoyable. It's something that's a very helpful tool. As a child then becomes more addicted to using vision, we can then start to work on the areas of weakness. So if a child cannot see on the left-hand side, after the child has learned to become very interested in using vision and is always searching and scanning and looking for the lights or the toys or the pom-poms or your face, we then could go ahead and put these visual stimuli in the weaker visual field. Now many people then ask the question, who should be the person to do vision stimulation? And this is something that's very, very important because of the fact that there are many people who are doing activities that develop vision. In other words, when a mom or a dad plays peekaboo with his or her child, they, in essence, are doing vision stimulation. But when we use the term vision stimulation as doctors, we are really encouraging that this is going to be a program that's performed and provided by a person who has been trained by either a doctor or other specialist in the area of low vision and vision development. We recommend that vision stimulation is going to be performed by somebody who has that particular type of training where they do understand the anatomy, the physiology, the neurology, and they also have learned how to do the specific types of activities to develop vision. Once these particular types of vision specialists receive this training, we then feel comfortable with instructing them how to perform the vision stimulation. For example, here in Los Angeles, we have actually spent hundreds of hours training staff from the Braille Institute and the Junior Blind of America to perform individualized vision stimulation. And I emphasize individualized because each child is going to need a different type of program of vision stimulation. When they actually then do begin to perform that particular type of vision stimulation, we like these consultants to come to the examination so we could show them specifically how to patch or how to use the eyedrop or how to actually use the different types of visual stimulation toys and activities. What they will then do is they will then demonstrate to the parents how to do these activities so that the parents could do this when they are not present. Many kids only have their early intervention specialists or child development specialists coming to the home maybe once or twice a week, but we want vision stimulation just to be a lifestyle. Vision stimulation isn't like working out on the treadmill and having to do the you know, different types of rower and running a mile every day where you dread it. But understanding what vision stimulation is, is a way that parents and family members and teachers and other therapists could actually incorporate that into the child's everyday life. So I'm going to give a few examples of what we might talk about in vision stimulation. And one of the clues that we want to find out is what type of visual stimuli does a child prefer? Does this child prefer objects that are stationary or things that are moving? We see that children who have retinopathy of prematurity often like objects to be presented right in their central vision, whereas children with cortical vision impairment often prefer moving objects that are going to be spinning and rotating in that peripheral vision. Lighting is another type of condition that we need to understand. There are many children are going to have conditions such as optic nerve hypoplasia and we really need to increase the lighting significantly or there might be other children who have cone degeneration and they actually have problems where it's too bright and we then want to use dark illumination so we first are going to find out number one what kind of targets to use number two what kind of lighting should we have number three We want to then find out what is going to be the best field of gaze to present these toys. How far should you present these toys and patterns and stimuli? And how frequently should we do this? Many times, some kids might be very, very interested in a light box that's going to have black and white stripes. And other kids are not going to be interested in the light box at all, but they might be interested in a person's face. This tells us a little bit about their stage of vision development. After we have actually done that, we then also want to consider how long can we perform the vision stimulation. Should we be performing it at 30 second intervals, one minute at a time? And when we're doing this type of therapy, we can actually do this just when we're doing our daily routine. When you come to the examination, you're going to actually learn what types of colors should you present, what distance. So let's say, for example, that you're going to wake up your baby and your baby's sleeping in the crib. We're going to recommend what type of lighting to have inside your child's room. And when you turn on the light, it's going to actually illuminate your face. We're going to tell you what distance you need to be. And we might even suggest that moms might use bright red lipstick. Or dads might go ahead and put on a bright red hat just to go ahead and to move from side to side to catch the attention of your child. This really, really basic and fundamental part of just waking up in the morning can be a visually stimulating activity. You may then think you're going to go ahead and dress your child. You're going to go ahead and take off his or her t-shirt or whatever, and you're going to put on a clean, fresh one. But before you put on that t-shirt, you want to go ahead and maybe purchase a t-shirt that's going to have stripes or polka dots or different colors. Or maybe it's going to be Elmo depending on what colors that we had recommended, what distance to present it, and simply move it. Move it and shake it until the child turns his or her head towards it, moves the eyes towards it, and that's also a form of vision stimulation. You could do the same thing as you're putting on the shoes and the socks. Later, if you're going to go into the bathroom, to go ahead and wash the face, you could go ahead and do a little bit of peekaboo into the mirror. You could actually have a handheld mirror and move it in different fields of gaze, and let the light reflect off of it so that the child could actually learn that there is visual space. You might go ahead and then just allow the child to touch the water. By touching the water we're developing visual motor eye hand reaching. Next we're going to go into the kitchen and get ready to eat. When we're feeding the baby let's go ahead and let's stripe the bottle. If we're going to have milk we could stripe the bottle with fluorescent electrical tape. And we can move it slightly from side to side to catch the attention. Place both hands so it's touching the bottle. Push the child's arms at the elbow. Never, never pull the child's hands to try to reach and grab something, but always push the elbow towards it so they start to get the association of what they see with what it feels like. If we're feeding food, say that we're going to have some vanilla cereal. Let's put it in a dark bowl okay, that's going to create a lot more contrast. Or if it's going to be chocolate Cocoa Krispies or something like that, let's pour it into a very, very dark bowl so that the milk is going to have that contrast. So we have a dark bowl, white milk, and dark Cocoa Krispies, and we get that type of contrast. Later, while you're doing the dishes, just go ahead and position your child in an area, maybe in a car seat at an incline, because the position of the child's going to be equally important. Some children could use their vision much better when they're not trying to fight gravity. You might put them in a car seat and then hang a mobile. We will tell you what color mobile, what distance, or it might be that we're going to teach you how to make a stained glass sliding glass door. You could use cellophane to make some different colors and if the morning sunlight is shining through, it's going to be very stimulating for your child. After you finish Doing your dishes and you then want to take a shower, maybe we might recommend something such as a baby Einstein or a baby Mozart video and we'll tell you what distance to be from the television. If you're then going to take your child out for a walk, this is going to be something that's also visually stimulating. You can let your child see the trees and all the brightness of the blue sky. So overall, you know, I'm really just trying to paint the picture here that vision stimulation isn't like doing 200 crunches or 50 push-ups. Vision stimulation is just a lifestyle so that by understanding what you're doing each time that you're presenting a stimulus to the child, it's actually doing different types of vision stimulation. What we then find is that usually within about three months, we start to see that there's going to be different changes, and the vision specialist will be the person who's going to actually call the doctor and give sort of an update. So it's very often that someone such as Julie or Judith Harris might call me and he might say, oh, well, you know what? We're noticing that the eye is straightening out sometimes now. Or we're noticing that he's now turning his head towards his left side, and before that was a side that he didn't even know existed. From there, we will modify that particular type of visual stimulation program, and other times we're going to modify the different types of glasses and other types of things that we do. So, overall, vision stimulation is something that is extremely, extremely important, especially during the first five years of life i've been doing this for over twenty two years, and I would say the first five years is the most critical. We also know that this is something that we cannot say that vision stimulation is not going to cure everybody's vision. in fact, at our center. We find that with children who have neurological vision impairment, it's about a third of them get significantly better. Okay? So we're going to see that, you know, about a third of them, they do definitely develop much higher vision. However, with many kids who have neurological vision impairment, the brain injury might affect some other aspect of their development. They might have speech problems, they might have dyslexia, they might have problems with math, some of them might have weakness to their body where they don't walk as well as we would like. So overall, it's important to do the vision stimulation but the realistic expectation is to try to help your child to develop to the best that he or she can be. Vision stimulation is not a magical pill type of thing that's going to make everything perfect. But it is something that could help many, many kids, and it's something that I strongly believe that all children deserve. When we see that a child's vision begins to develop, we often see that the improvement of their vision affects many other aspects of their general life. When they begin to see the circles of your eyes, this helps them to make eye contact, and they start to have better maternal and social bonding. When a child develops the ability to see objects, we often see that they then start to reach for it because they know that there's something there. When a child becomes aware and has better peripheral vision, we see that their balance improves. When children have better central vision, where they could see smaller details, they begin to pinch, they begin to pick up things with their thumb and their index finger. As kids get the ability to focus even further than five feet, we see that that's really a very strong stimulus to crawl and later to walk. So vision is very, very important in the aspect of all other parts of development because two-thirds of the brain is involved in the process of vision. When the brain receives information from the eyes, the visual cortex sends it to other regions of the brain that control many different aspects of reaching, crawling, talking, walking, reading. So this is why we see that as a child's vision develops that they will often make other developmental gains. Now people will often say, well what about kids who are just sort of marginal? They don't have cortical vision impairment, they didn't have a major stroke, they didn't have a major seizure, But my child was premature, my child was 28 weeks gestation, or my child was, you know, one pound, four ounces. Well, I think that these kids who are high risk are really probably the most important because they have enough function that we could really accelerate their development. There's a lot of people who feel that kids who are at risk, they're doing good enough and they'll catch up at a later time. But I think that these are the kids that we're going to get the most responses with, and these kids are going to actually do extremely well. So I do have a lot of concerns with some of these kids who are being denied different types of services because they're actually performing too well. When I was in my private practice, I specialized in working with kids who had vision-related reading problems, and it was very, very often... If a child was only one grade behind in reading, a lot of times the teachers would say, well, he'll catch up. He's not doing that bad. He'll catch up. And then the following year, well, he's not that far behind. He's only a year and a half behind in reading. And then we got the following year. Now he's two years behind in reading. Well, in reality, what this child has done, this child has lost two complete years of the potential of actually learning more. So in the same respect, when a child is having some marginal weaknesses with their vision or with other aspects of development, I think that vision stimulation and other types of stimulation such as sensory integration therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, behavioral therapy, I think those are equally important. Now the last thing as we begin to close, is the fact that many people confuse the terms vision therapy with vision stimulation. Vision therapy is a program that is provided by licensed optometrist and ophthalmologist. This is a program that is prescribed specifically by doctors and most often performed in the offices of doctors where lenses, prism, filters, and specialized instruments called vectorgrams and polaroids are often used to help the child to develop higher levels of vision. This is usually for kids who have a weak eye muscle or a focusing problem where they can't shift the focus from far to near. In contrast, vision stimulation is a term that we usually use to actually try and enhance the vision of children during the first five years of life these children typically have low vision. These are kids who might have legal blindness, they might have a loss of peripheral vision, blurred sight, eye disease, optic nerve disease, or problems to the visual centers of the brain. So when we ask the question, do teachers for the visually impaired perform vision therapy? By definition, the answer would be no and the reason for that is because vision therapy is performed in the the doctor's office typically by doctors or certified vision therapists. Some teachers may have received training from low vision optometrists and ophthalmologists and they might perform vision stimulation similar to many child development specialists or infant development specialists or early intervention specialists. Even some occupational therapists have actually attended many programs and seminars on vision stimulation, and they may perform the vision stimulation as well. So overall, I want all of you parents and teachers who work with children with low vision to really recommend vision stimulation and encourage the parents to do the vision stimulation activities as much as they can. In order to know which activities to be done, it's important that they either have a functional low vision assessment by a low vision optometrist or ophthalmologist or that they work with a specialist who has been trained in this area so I hope that this information is helpful and at this time we'll go ahead and open it up to uh, questions. Okay when a child actually has infantile spasms that is something different when the whole body is spasming That is something that is not going to be related to the patching of the eyes. That seems to be more of a coincidental thing that's happening at that time. So so at this point in time, I think that the infantile spasms where her body is shaking and things like that, that is where basically her neurologist might want to go ahead and evaluate her to see if there's other medications that might help with that. However, to develop the vision, it seems as though there are some problems to the optic nerve, And I would suggest that vision stimulation would be helpful. The first step, though, is that with her better eye, we want to really make certain that she could track and follow in all the different fields of gaze that she can reach, that she can grab, and do many other types of visual developmental skills before we actually do that complete patching and force the other weaker eye. So I think that a a real appropriate and real specific vision stimulation program would be very, very helpful. The information that we would need to know from this is, number one, what is her visual acuity with each eye? Number two, what is her peripheral vision with each eye? Number three, what is the degree of nearsightedness with each eye? And number four, what is the eye muscle balance? And from those pieces of information, then a specific program of patching can be performed. And that patching might involve wearing glasses with a piece of uh, tape over it, or it might involve using a bandage patch, or it might involve just using an eye drop to blur the weak, the better eye to force a weaker eye to stimulate the brain. So I would recommend that you, you, have a doctor give you all of that specific information and to develop a specific program. And if you are working with uh, the Junior Blind of America or the PIVOT program or Braille Institute Child Development, that these folks can then help you in terms of showing you how to do the vision stimulation activities recommended by the doctor. Next question. Yeah, the question is, does medical or other types of insurances cover vision therapy in the offices of a doctor? And the answer to that is yes and no. For a child who has private insurance, many of the private insurances will cover for vision therapy in the offices of a doctor. Unfortunately, medical does not cover for vision therapy. So in many cases, what could be helpful is for a family who has a child who might have a vision problem who needs vision therapy they can have a consultation with the optometrist and let's say for example this is a child who's beginning to read the child's six years old or five years old and just can't keep his or her place when she's trying to read while well, the optometrist might actually develop and design a program of home exercises and this is something that parents could do at home and then go back to the doctor once every month for a progress check and more exercises. That is one more affordable way of doing vision therapy if a person doesn't have insurance. Next question. Yes, Cynthia is asking whether or not she could take her students to have a functional vision assessment. And yeah, there's many different types of pediatric optometrists and ophthalmologists throughout the country that do Functional vision assessments. If the child is low vision, if you know that this child has suffered from retinopathy of prematurity or cortical vision impairment or other types of low vision, then you do want to have an examination by a low vision optometrist or a low vision ophthalmologist. In the Los Angeles area, uh, there's us, the Center for the Partially Sighted, and we we have five locations in Southern California. There's also the Southern California College of Optometry that also does perform functional low vision assessments. Yeah, and these particular types of low vision examinations, whether it'll be at the Southern California College of Optometry in Orange County, that's in Fullerton, or uh, Center for the Partially Sighted. We have offices in the San Fernando Valley, West LA, Culver City area, Torrance, Pasadena, Eagle Rock. Uh, these particular types of examinations are covered by Medi-Cal. If the child has straight Medi-Cal, Medi-Cal, will cover for the low vision examination as well as glasses that the child might then need. In some cases, too, CCS might make that particular type of a referral as well. Okay, thank you, everybody. Okay, bye-bye.